Well, we are in uh, 1 Kings chapter 11 once again. We are looking at, today, we're looking at verses 14 to 43. There is a legend about B.B. Warfield that floats around. I call it a legend because I couldn't actually find a single source where he said this. But supposedly, someone once asked him, what is Christianity? And the answer that he gave was unembarrassed supernaturalism. Now, that answer is vague enough that any number of uses could be made of it. And I think all of us would want a bit more description and more clarity on what is Christianity, maybe something about the gospel. But I think it does capture a very important element of the Christian faith a very important element of the biblical worldview, a belief in the pervasive reality of the supernatural. Now, it's no surprise to Christians that God is at work in infinite, unseen ways, even in events and circumstances that at first glance or on the surface just appear to be natural events, natural occurrences, maybe even random. But we know that God ordains whatever comes to pass. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. If you roll the dice, the numbers that show up are put in place by God. Even things that seem random, random occurrences, are determined by the Lord. He has such a sovereign control over reality. Even events that seem to have no semblance of control or pattern that directs the outcome are determined by God. How much more can we say that other events are determined by God? If even the random things are determined by God, how much more are the unrandom things determined by God? Right? Well, in fact, as we read 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 14 to 43, that is one of the chief truths that stands out. It's the sovereignty of God in arranging events and circumstances, his providential ordering of all things. Now, last time, Joshua taught on the opening verses of chapter 11 and showed us the disastrous consequences of unrepentant sin from Solomon's own life. Although Solomon started okay, and we are convinced of his ultimate repentance, I think Ecclesiastes is an evidence of that, he went through a phase of life where his heart was turned away from God. And we could speculate about why he was able to be corrupted that way. Now, I think it's interesting that of all Solomon's wives, he only has three children that are mentioned in the Bible. One son and two, thought, two daughters that only receive parenthetical references. And a lot of those pagan false gods uh, were fertility gods. That's, that's interesting to me. There could be some connection there, but the writer doesn't address that. What is more important is that he blatantly disobeyed God's law concerning marrying foreign women and the specific law for the king against multiplying wives to himself. There was a specific command for, that, for the king not to multiply wives to himself, but there was also a general command not to intermarry with foreigners. And the rationale that was given in the commandment back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3 is that they would turn the people's hearts away from God to their foreign gods. And that is exactly what happened with Solomon. To the extent 
that his legacy became proverbial for Nehemiah when he was reforming. In Nehemiah 13, 26, he's dealing with Jews who had intermarried foreigners, and their kids don't even speak the Hebrew tongue anymore. They're speaking the languages of the Amorites and the other nations that are around. Nehemiah says, Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Now, as we think about that, it's not the fact that they were foreign women. It's the fact that they were foreign women who retained their idolatrous practices. Ruth was a Moabite, was she not? And yet, she converted. She became an Israelite. She joined herself to the Israelite people. She forsook her false gods and turned to the true and living God, Yahweh. And so the emphasis is always on the, the heart idolatry that arises from these illicit marriages. Now, in this particular text, God raises up adversaries against Solomon in response to Solomon's wickedness. Solomon's betrayal of God and Israel, he didn't just betray God. He betrayed the nation of Israel by going after strange gods. Solomon's violation of the covenant that God had made with him. In this text, we see that God afflicts those who break his covenant. In particular, when Solomon broke the covenant God had made with him, God raised up enemies to judge his ruler. Let's see if this works. God. Yeah, God afflicts those who break his covenant. That's our theme today. And in the first section, from verses 14 to 40, we see that God raises up enemies to judge his ruler. Now, the author of 1 Kings introduces some of the historical figures that would cause Israel problems throughout the following centuries uh, through their descendants and their influences that would trickle down through history. It's important to note that God is the one who raised up these adversaries. God is the one who raised them up. They didn't just show up. They weren't just an inconvenience in Solomon's life. These were directly put there by God in response to his wickedness. And it's important because as you read through the backstory of each of these guys, it seems more like the natural sequence of events. If we were secular historians looking at this text as a record of events, uh, we would uh, reject the supernatural elements and we would say, yeah, this is just a record of history. But we're not secularists. We recognize the supernatural, and we see God at work controlling these events, putting these men in place. He's sovereignly orchestrating all things. Now, the first of these adversaries mentioned here is Hadad the Edomite. So let's read, beginning in verse 14. Then the Lord raised up an adversary to Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the royal line in Edom. For it came about when David was in Edom, and Joab, the commander of the army, had gone up to bury the slain, and had struck down every male in Edom. For Joab and all Israel stayed there six months until he had cut off every male in Edom, that Hadad fled to Egypt, he and certain Edomites of his father's servants with him, while Hadad was a young boy. They arose from Midian and came to Paran, and they took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave him a house and assigned him food and gave him land. 
Now Hadad found great favor before Pharaoh, so that he gave him in marriage the, the sister of his own wife, the sister of Tapenis, the queen. The sister of Tapenis bore his son Genubat, whom Tapenis weaned in Pharaoh's house. And Genubat was in Pharaoh's house among the sons of Pharaoh. But when Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept with his fathers and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, Send me away, that I may go to my own country. Then Pharaoh said to him, But what have you lacked with me, that, behold, you are seeking to go to your own country? And he answered, Nothing. Nevertheless, you must surely let me go. Now, Edom is a country that is south of, oops, uh, that is south of Israel. So you can see here in the map, uh, Edom is located south of Israel. So the geography plays a little bit of an important role, which is why I bring it up. Um, so keep that in the back of your head, that Edom is south of Israel. So God raised up Edad, or Hadad the Edomite. Now, we read that Hadad was a refuge from the slaying of the Edomites by David and Joab. In Deuteronomy 20, verses, eight, or verses 10 to 18, God gives the Israelites commandments concerning how to deal with uh, cities that they're attacking and whatnot. The lands outside the inheritance are not to be subjected to complete annihilation. The cities that are inside the inheritance, that are inside the promised land, the Israelites are to wipe them out completely because of their paganism, because of the influence that they would have on the people, which is an evidence of how strongly, how seriously we should take sin. These pagans would have had such a corrupting influence that it was not valuable in God's sight for them to remain alive at all. But uh, there's also a, a provision made, uh, especially for the, the cities that are outside the land of Israel. They should offer terms of peace to the city. And if, they sur and if the city surrenders, then they are to uh, turn them into forced labor and, and keep them as servants. But the, the people are to forsake their idolatry. That's part of the conditions. But if they rebel, then they are then the Israelites are to destroy all the males. And so that is what happened uh, with the Edomites. The David and Joab were in Edom, and they were carrying out that task. They were destroying the males in, in, in continuity with this command. Uh, there's a brief mention of the Edomite conquest in 2 Samuel 8, verses 13 to 14, but more detail is given here in 1 Kings 11. If you think about the reason for that, it's that 2 Samuel 8-10 focuses on David's victories. And these are uh, events, these are people that sort of filter out from David's victories. The timeline, interestingly enough, indicates that Hadad was only a little older than Solomon. And we read here, uh, these are events that are taking place during the lifetime of David. Uh, 2 Samuel 8-10 Hadad is just a little boy. He's a young lad. But this is right before David's sin with Bathsheba. And so Solomon would have, born, would have been born uh, maybe two years after this. And so there's maybe 10 to 12 years age difference between them. As a child, 
uh, Hadad escaped Edom and went to Egypt. And we see in verse 14 that he was of the royal line of Edom. Now, Joab and Israel's army spent six months killing off the Edomite males. And these refugees fled to Midian, and soon thereafter, they, they gathered an entourage from Paran. And they fled, to, uh, they fled from Midian and, and gathered that entourage, and they went to Egypt, and they were harbored by Pharaoh. He gave them refuge. He, but he gave Hadad a house and land and assigned him food. And if you think about why he would have done that, well, it probably had something to do with the fact that Hadad was of the royal line. Pharaoh was showing respect for his royalty. But when Hadad was older, he, found, he not only uh, received this, this place of refuge, this harbor, but he found favor in Pharaoh's sight. And so he married into Pharaoh's family. He's, he's rising up in the world, so to speak. Things are going very well for him in Egypt. Uh, his son is raised among Pharaoh's sons. He's got this position of prestige. Now, what's interesting to me is if you think about how all of these things connect with Solomon's own life, you know, Hadad is just a little bit older than Solomon. His son is being raised uh, with Pharaoh's sons. Solomon has an Egyptian wife, the daughter of Pharaoh. His wife is probably intimately acquainted with Hadad and his family. She probably knows them. This Pharaoh would have most likely have been her father, possibly her brother. We don't know. And so there's a, there's a familial connection there. But when Hadad learns that David and Joab are dead, he feels compelled to return to his homeland. He has this overwhelming urge to return. Even though things are going so well for him in Egypt, he wants to go back to his homeland. And it's part of the, the, the work that God is doing, raising him up as an adversary. But these events all, date all the way back to the life of David before Solomon's birth. And yet God was at work orchestrating these occurrences for the day when Solomon rebelled against him. That's amazing. History is not neutral. Things don't just happen. God is moving things as he wills. But Hadad the Edomite is not the only slave. I need to keep up with the slideshow. Uh, not the only adversary God raised up against Solomon. He also raised up Rezon the Syrian. And we read about him in verses 23 to 25. It says, beginning in verse 23, God also raised up another adversary to him, Rezon the son of Eliada, who had fled from his lord, Hadadezer, king of Zobah. He gathered men to himself and became leader of a marauding band, after David slew them of Zobah. And they went to Damascus and stayed there and reigned in Damascus. So he was an adversary to Israel all the days of Solomon, along with the evil that Hadad did. And he abhorred Israel and reigned over Aram. And so right there, we, see, we also see a little bit more about Hadad. He, it says that uh, the evil, that Hadad did evil to Solomon. He caused him harm in some way. We don't know the specifics, but we know that he caused him harm in some way. Now, there are only three verses here, but uh, there's more detail given in 2 Samuel uh, chapters 8 and 10 about Hadadezer. 
uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verses 3 to 8, we, we won't turn there just for the sake of time, but we read there that David defeats Hadadezer. He decimates the Aramean army. And then after this, the Ammonites hired the Arameans to fight against Israel. For some reason, the Ammonites had it in their head that even though the Arameans got defeated before, they're still good mercenaries. I don't know why they thought that. But then, this doesn't play out well for them either. In 2 Samuel chapter 10, verses 15 to 19, David defeats Hadadezer again, and he again decimates the Aramean army. And the Arameans become subject to David and pay tribute. Now, when you read that, you see that the Arameans, well, they're, they're being subject to David. Hadadezer, as king over you know, this certain region of, the, of Aram, he is subject to David as a result of David's victories. When Rezon rebels against his master, he's also rebelling against David. And so he's causing trouble for David as well. He's, a rebellion. He's in rebellion against David and David's throne. Now, Damascus and Aram, Syria, are uh, north. Let's see. Yeah. They're north of Israel. And so, Israel has enemies north and south. So, we read first about the enemies to the south, and then we read about the enemies to the north. Israel is being surrounded now by enemies in response to Solomon's wickedness. Um, I didn't do a very good job with my slideshow. Organization skills. Um, and so there's enemies on either side. But not only did God raise up adversaries against Solomon to the north and the south, he raised up an adversary from within Israel. A name that becomes infamous throughout the books of First and Second Kings. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. God raised up Jeroboam, the Israelite. And so Solomon now has adversaries to the north, to the south, and even within Israel, working against him. Now we first read about Jeroboam, beginning in verse 26. Verses 26 to 28 read as follows. Then Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zeradah, Solomon's servant, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. And so that's how the narrative about Jeroboam begins, by saying that he rebelled against the king. Now this was the reason why he rebelled against the king. Solomon built the Milo and closed up the breach of the city of his father, David. Now the man Jeroboam, Jeroboam was a valiant warrior. And when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he appointed him over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. Now, this is Jeroboam's backstory, if you will. Uh, Jeroboam is first recognized for his natural ability. Now, the name of his father, Nebat, does not appear except in connection with Jeroboam. And, and the implication is probably that Jeroboam was not from a major family in Israel a major family in Ephraim. We also read that he was Solomon's servant. Now, we don't know exactly where in the chain of command Jeroboam was, but he was close enough to Solomon to be recognized by Solomon. And so he had already most likely moved up within the organization of Solomon's workforce anyway. But the story of his rebellion 
begins with Solomon building the Milo and closing up the breach of the city of David. It began with Solomon's projects. Solomon was a builder. He loved building things. He was building things all the time. Now, it's not clear exactly what the Milo was. This is the only time that it's mentioned. But notice in verse 28 that, Jer- that Jeroboam, is, it says, was a valiant warrior. This is essentially calling Jeroboam a man in three different ways. It says the man Jeroboam was a valiant warrior. Uh, Literally, the man Jeroboam was manly strong. Now, the word valiant, uh, the Hebrew word is gibor, it's used elsewhere uh, in the divine title El Gibor, translated as mighty God in Isaiah 9-6 that we read earlier today. It's a title for the Messiah. But this is the same word that's also used to refer to David's mighty men, his private entourage of elite soldiers. This is the way that the author describes Jeroboam. This is what Jeroboam is recognized for, his strength, his valiance, his bravery, his courage. But it also says that he was a warrior, literally strong. He was strong. Now, the way that the Hebrew speaks about soldiers at times is just referring to strong men, people that are strong. And this is certainly Jeroboam. It's a way of describing a man as brave by emphasizing his physical strength. Jeroboam was a man's man. He was a manly man. He probably had some hair on his chest. This is also, though, a term used to refer to wealth or property. And so strength uh, has, has this connection with the idea of influence. Jeroboam was the kind of man that other men look up to. They look at Jeroboam and they say, man, I want to be like that guy. I want to follow him. He had that kind of persona. This is the description of a man fit for action, a man fit for battle. Clearly, Jeroboam had the virtue of being courageous. And so, in the context of Jeroboam's identification as a valiant warrior, the Milo was probably some kind of military fortification known by name. Solomon was likely responding to some of these threats that he was foreseeing rise up. Notice that Solomon also recognized, in verse 28, that the young man, Jeroboam, was industrious. Literally, one who does work. You give him a job, and he does it. Now, that's worth something. Not everybody will do their job when you give them a job. But Jeroboam did his job. He did the work that was given to him. But probably, it also implies the idea of excellence in carrying out his tasks. He didn't just do the work in a slipshod manner. He did it with excellence. He did it with industry. Jeroboam was physically strong, but he wasn't just a grunt. He was a gifted leader as well. He was strong of mind as well as body. And so how does Jeroboam go from being a gifted leader serving Solomon to rebelling against him? Well, it all begins with a certain prophecy by Ahijah. Ahijah prophesies about Jeroboam's reign over the ten northern tribes of Israel. Beginning in verse 29, all the way through 39, we read, 
it came about that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem. So this is about the same time that he was appointed over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph, that the prophet Ahijah the Shilonite found him on the road. Now Ahijah had clothed himself with a new cloak, and both of them were alone in the field. Then Ahijah took hold of the new cloak which was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. He said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give you ten tribes, but he will have one tribe, for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me and have worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the sons of Ammon. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and observing my statutes and my ordinances, as his father David did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life, for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose, who observed my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom from his son's hand and give it to you, even ten tribes. But to his son I will give one tribe, that my servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen for myself to put my name. I will take you, and you shall reign over whatever you desire, and you shall be king over Israel. Then it will be that if you listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight by observing my statutes and my commandments, as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build you an enduring house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. Thus I will afflict the descendants of David for this, but not always. So around the time that Jeroboam has just been recognized for his natural ability, this young man, this young, strong, mighty man, the prophet Ahijah comes to him. Now, the term Shilonite, Ahijah is described as a Shilonite, it means that he was from Shiloh. This was the place where the tabernacle had been set up in Israel before Jerusalem became the city chosen by God for his name to dwell there. And we read in verse 29 that they were both on the road and in the field. Now, at first glance, you might be wondering, how could that happen if they were on the road and in the field? But really, they were probably traveling on one of those farm roads farm roads that you find where on either side of you, you've got fields that come right up to the road. You can be both on the road and in the middle of a field. And if you live in the south, you've probably experienced that. That's the situation they were in. And then in verse, beginning in verse 30, running through 36, Ahijah gives Jeroboam this concrete symbol to go along with the message he has from God. He has a new cloak, a cloak that hasn't undergone any decay. It hasn't deteriorated like clothes deteriorate with use. I mean, your nicest jeans, your Sunday night jeans, will one day be fit only for yard work, no matter how well you take care of them. They wear out. Every time you wash them, they get uh, more broken down and more deteriorated. But this was a garment that was still pristine, still in mint condition, as it were. And as a symbol of the kingdom, it represented the unity of the kingdom, 
and the prosperity and the blessed state of the nation. The nation of Israel at that time was, in a certain sense, pristine, unspoiled by war, disease, and famine, untainted by poverty and corruption, and then the cloak was torn into pieces. Can you just imagine if you had a, a garment like that and you tore it into 12 pieces, even if you stitched it back together, it would always be deformed. It would never be as good as it was before without a miracle. It will always be deformed to some extent. Ahijah gives Jeroboam this symbol and the meaning. He doesn't just tear the garment up and say, here you go, here's 10 pieces, and then not say anything. That's not how God operates. Ahijah gives Jeroboam this symbol and the meaning. Ten tribes for Jeroboam, one tribe for Solomon's heirs. And notice in verse 32 that this is not for Solomon's sake. It's not for anything that Solomon has done. Not for anything Solomon has believed. But, it is for, but if it is for anyone's sake, if it's for anyone's sake at all, it's solely for the sake of his head, his Lord, his father, David. Now, humanly speaking, David is the head of the Davidic line, and Solomon and his heirs benefit from David's faithfulness. Don't think that your faithfulness to God or lack thereof has no impact on your children or those in your sphere of influence. It does. We see both play out in the descendants of David and Solomon and in the nations of Israel and Judah. They experience both the benefits of David's faithfulness and the consequences of Solomon's unfaithfulness. But there's a second reason why Solomon and his heirs retain one tribe. Verse 32 says, For the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel. Jerusalem is the chosen city foretold in Deuteronomy 12.5 as the city that God said, about it, my name shall be there. God established Jerusalem as the place of worship, the place that would stand as a symbol of his continual presence with the people. Now, why are the ten tribes being taken away from Solomon's line? Well, in verse 33, it says, because they have forsaken me and have worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the sons of Ammon. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and observing my statutes and my ordinances, as his father David did. God's charge against Solomon and Israel is that they have forsaken him. Not Solomon alone. Not Solomon by himself. He says, they have forsaken me. They have worshipped these false gods. They have not walked in my ways. Solomon is not the only guilty party here. They had an example in David, and they did not follow it. And God judges them for this. In verse Verses 34 to 36, he reiterates that one tribe will remain to Solomon's throne for David's sake and for Jerusalem, the city of God's name. And then in verses 37 and 38, 
Jeroboam is promised a kingdom. God says, I will take you and you shall reign over whatever you desire and you shall be king over Israel. What a promise. You shall reign over whatever you desire. I mean, that's phenomenal. Like everything that he would look at and say, I desire to reign over that, God is saying, you will reign over that. That's an incredible promise. But it's got a condition. It's conditioned upon listening to all that God commands, walking in his ways, and doing what is right in God's sight by observing God's statutes and commandments like David did. And if he would do that, he was promised an enduring house like the one God built for David. What a promise. All he had to do was keep his end of the bargain. All he had to do was be faithful to this promise that God was making him. And we know that ultimately he did not. Jeroboam himself uh, became the chief instigator of idolatry in the northern kingdom. You thought Solomon had done bad. Jeroboam did worse. And it continued on forever until the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, was taken away. And then in verse 39, we read that Jeroboam's kingdom will be a source of affliction for the descendants of David. God is afflicting Solomon's house through Jeroboam's kingdom. But note what he says. But not always. That's how he ends verse 39. He talks about all of the judgment, all of the affliction that he's bringing upon Solomon through Jeroboam, taking the ten kingdoms away, to the ten tribes away. But he says, not always. This affliction is not forever. There is an end goal. There is a terminus. There is a point to this affliction. And in response, after this, Jeroboam becomes a refugee. And we aren't given any details about how Solomon found out about Ahijah's prophecy to Jeroboam. But since the text says that Jeroboam rebelled against Solomon, it's likely that, that when he heard this prophecy, he began taking steps in response to it. He began acting on this prophecy. But because of this rebellion, Solomon sought his life. And Jeroboam, like one of Solomon's other enemies, was harbored by Pharaoh, by Egypt. It's interesting that Egypt comes up a few different times in this chapter. Egypt is kind of a, kind of a shady character. There's something underhanded going on with Egypt all the time. God did not remain passive towards Solomon's betrayal. He didn't just look at Solomon's wickedness and turn a blind eye. He didn't limit his omniscience. Rather, God brought about a chain of events reaching back into the past that served as chastisement for Solomon and also for Israel. And so as we consider the life of Solomon, all of his works and achievements in the light of his betrayal, it's hard to find the commendable things, the honorable things. And, in fact, the author of 1 Kings draws your attention to that fact 
So he showed you that God raises up enemies to judge his ruler. But then as he summarizes Solomon's life and legacy, there's this great emptiness in all of this. Because there's no mention of anything honorable about what Solomon leaves behind. And I think that's the point that the author is trying to make, is that the only honorable legacy is faithfulness to God. Solomon has been unfaithful. And the only thing that's worth mentioning are things that you can read about elsewhere, is what he more or less says. Now the rest of the acts of Solomon and whatever he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon? Go read them there, he says. Thus, the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years, and Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of his father David, and his son Rehoboam reigned in his place. That's it. That's uneventful. First Kings is largely about what went wrong. It's decidedly pessimistic. There's no mention of Solomon's repentance in First Kings. We've already seen that Solomon's good theology in his prayers, he had good theology, and we've seen it in some of his actions of dealing shrewdly and wisely with others. And good theology is important. It can have a preserving effect in the life of the believer, but it is not enough on its own. It's not enough to just have head knowledge. Having the right information is not enough to preserve you from taking a destructive path. When we sin, it is often in spite of what we know and believe to be right. And it was no different with Solomon. No one can look at Solomon and say, well, he didn't really know. Come on. No one can say that he didn't know what he was doing. Now, this leads to one big question, because we're going to be looking at some of Solomon's other writings. And I hate to be the guy that leads you know, that ends the life of Solomon by looking at all the bad things that he did and how horribly it went wrong, and then we're jump-starting into reading some of Solomon's other works. How in the world are we going to benefit from writings that this guy left behind if he acted so wickedly at the end of his life? Well, it's important to remember that all men are sinful. You know, we can take the authors of Scripture and we tend to put them on a pedestal and say, these guys must have been flawless or something like that. They were sinful, the way that all of us are sinful. And yet God has sovereignly chosen these men as instruments through which he has given us Holy Scripture. On the question of Scripture, Solomon's thoughts reflected the truths that God desired to communicate to his people. That's the takeaway. Where Solomon's thoughts agreed with the mind of God, they're inspired scripture. And all that he wrote and that we have in the Bible is inspired scripture. His writings are inspired. And so, what are some applications that we can make from this? From this fact, overall, that God afflicts those who break his covenant. Because that's the main theme of this entire section. And we see God afflicting his ruler, Solomon, by raising up adversaries. There are other ways that he can afflict people as well. And so generally, it's just true that God afflicts those who break his covenant. Well, the first application that we can make is this. Be faithful to the covenant. 
Now, we are living in the church age. For us, the only covenant is the new covenant inaugurated by Jesus, the Messiah. And you enter into this covenant not by physical birth, not by an act of your own will, as John says it, but only by spiritual birth, accomplished by a work of the Holy Spirit. It's what we refer to as regeneration. You enter into this covenant through faith in Christ, begotten in you by God himself. You put your hope not in your own virtue, not in your own deeds, not in your own merits, not in your own accomplishments. Solomon had no accomplishments to point to. Your best righteousness is just a filthy rag, a shredded garment, decayed and rotting. Your best deeds are utterly impotent. They have no strength. Your best deeds are not mighty in the sight of God. But you trust in Jesus Christ alone, who alone among all men is the Holy One, the righteous, the Savior of the world, the one who bore our sins in his body on the cross, the one who made perfect atonement for sin and satisfied the wrath of God that was levied against all unrighteousness. That is your entrance into the new covenant. And no power of hell can tear you from the hand of Christ your shepherd if you are truly one of his sheep. If you have been brought into the new covenant, do not betray Christ your king. Don't harbor secret sins that will lead to God's chastisement. And on the other hand, if you've not been brought into the new covenant, if you have not trusted in Christ as Lord, what hope do you think you have apart from Christ? If not even believers are spared any affliction, are spared affliction when they are unfaithful to the covenant, if God chastises them as sons, how much more will you suffer for eternity apart from Christ? for your persistent rebellion against the Creator. Unbeliever, listen. Be faithful to the covenant by entering into it. And believer, be faithful to the covenant by pressing on in faith and the good deeds that have been ordained for you to walk in. Those good deeds are not your means of entering into the covenant or maintaining your covenant status. They're evidence of the fact that you are in the covenant. A second application, and I want to be a little bit careful with this one because I think some people can exaggerate this in a gross way, but when you experience trials and afflictions, reasonably, and key word here, reasonably examine yourself to see whether it is the discipline of the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that you go looking for God's discipline under every hailstone. But it means that whenever you are suffering affliction in this life, you seriously examine yourself to see whether you have unrepentant sin. Now, in the case of Solomon, God gave him direct revelation to the fact that he had unrepentant sin in his life. Now, God's not going to give you direct revelation saying, yeah, you sinned and here's why this is happening. He doesn't do that but you will know 
you will have clarity of some kind that God is disciplining you. We know that he disciplines believers, believers when they sin. Paul writes about this whenever he's writing in 1 Corinthians on the Lord's Supper. He tells them that many among you are sick and some have even died. And it's a result of their not regarding the body rightly, of their acts of wickedness toward others in the body of Christ. And so when you experience afflictions, seriously consider, is there some sin for which God is chastising me? And if not, hey, rejoice in your sufferings because it still has a purging, a purifying, sanctifying effect. The third application, and I think this was very appropriate for today, is pray for those who govern. And we did that this morning. Uh, our nation is not in covenant with God the way Israel, as a nation, was in covenant with God. But it's, God still has expectations for human rulers. This is true wherever, uh, wherever government exists. God has expectations for those that he has put in power, those who administer the government of society that he himself has put in place. When rulers act wickedly, God does not turn a blind eye. He does not limit his omniscience. Paul said in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. That includes when governors, when rulers act ungodly and unjustly. Sodom and Gomorrah were not in covenant with God, and yet God obliterated them. He wiped them from the face of the earth. He reduced them to ashes and stone. God does judge nations and rulers for their wickedness. And it's imperative that as believers, we pray for our nation. We pray for our rulers. We pray for those who exercise government, who exercise authority over us. They may be wicked and unjust, but God desires that all men be saved. Even the President of the United States, as much as we may not like him, we are to pray for him and pray that God would save him. I began by noting that Christians are unembarrassed supernaturalists. We see this play out in the way that God orchestrates events. We believe that God is at work in the world. We believe he disciplines his children the way a father disciplines his son. And we believe that God answers prayer. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good and you are holy. And Lord, there are times when we act in ways that are sinful, when we commit sins and we are not faithful to the covenant that, in which we have entered. We are not faithful to Christ. But Father, you discipline us as sons. And Father, we thank you that you do not leave us to our sins, 
but that you care about us, that you restore us through the, the afflictions that you bring upon us. And Father, I pray for any who are here today that do not know Christ, that are not known by him, that they would cease from their sins, that they would cease from the weariness of sin and cast their cares upon Christ and take his yoke upon them. God, we thank you for the work that Christ has done. We thank you for the perfect satisfaction of sins that he has made, that we don't have to work to earn our salvation. Because if we did, then none of us would have a place with you. We would all suffer damnation. Because not one of us is good enough. Not one of us is holy enough or sanctified enough. All of us are guilty before you. But Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness of sins that we have in Christ. Lord, we confess our sins before you today. And we pray that you would forgive us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.